attention to your word, God, would you give us an extra measure of grace to understand words that, um, that may be unfamiliar to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, this morning as we continue um, our series through 1 Peter, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the final paragraph in that chapter, and I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. First Peter 3, starting at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. You can be seated, please. <laughs> so this is the strangest passage I have ever preached on. If uh, you were reading it now or listening to the words being read and you thought, I have no idea what that means, then, then you are in really good company. I, I remember um, when I was in seminary like 15 years ago, I had to write a paper on this passage and I remember writing a paper on the passage and turning it in and thinking, I still have no idea what this passage means. Um, what does it mean when it says Jesus preached to the spirits imprisoned in the days of Noah? Uh, when did Jesus do that? Where did he do that? And um, what does it mean when it says that this corresponds to baptism? And why does he say that baptism now saves you? These are, these are really strange words. They have uh, confused a lot of people, um, but Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it really well. Um, he said this about this passage. He says, a wonderful text this is, a more obscure passage perhaps than any other passage in the New Testament. Uh, I do not know for certain just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. Okay, so he's raising the bar <laughs> a little bit. You know, this is one of those passages that for half the week I was really tempted to just, just skip it. But really what I want to do this morning is kind of try to use this as a case study of what do we do when we come to a place in the Bible that we don't understand. And, um, you know, it's natural, I think, when we read something that we don't understand to just move on. But if the Bible is God's word, then we have to make some attempt to listen to what God is saying to us, even when it doesn't make a lot of sense, even when we come to places in the Bible where we don't like what it says or, or we're confused by what it says. And so, um, and so we're going to make our, uh, our best attempts. There are uh, a ton of confusing details in this passage, but in general, I think the, the um, big picture meaning of this passage is something that we can understand. Um, so what do we do? 
what do we do when we come to a passage like this where we read it and there's a bunch of questions about what it means and it's really confusing? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is we need to have a, bit of, a little bit of humility. Uh, it is okay if we don't understand everything that the Bible says. It's okay. And we can admit that. But there are two principles that I want to kind of lay out for us that we should uh, hold on to when it comes to a passage that we don't understand. And the, the two passages are this, context and clarity. Meaning this, context, first of all, uh, means we have to understand this text in the context. Um, those people who people study the Bible say, uh, use the phrase, context is king. Uh, context, the context of what comes before and what comes after a passage helps us to understand what it means. It's, it's logical for us to assume that Peter is is speaking in a coherent way here. That he doesn't, uh, he isn't just moving along and then take a, you know, a swerve to the left and go off on a completely different tangent. So it, it's logical to assume that this has something to do with what comes before it and what comes after it. So context is important, but also um, clarity. Um, and what does that mean? It means this. There's a lot of questions that we can ask. And when you read a passage like this, there's all these questions that come to the surface, and you're like, what in the world is going on? Instead of focusing or fretting about the, the, the questions, the confusing details, focus on the things that are clear. Focus on the things that we can understand. So what is the context, and what can we understand? What can we be confident about in this passage? Um, well, let's look first at the context. What comes before this passage and what comes after it? If you remember from last week, uh, Peter has been talking about the reality of suffering, uh, that Christians face opposition in, uh, in the world that we live in. The original recipients of this passage, uh, we believe, were Christians who were living in Asia Minor who were coming under uh, persecution, opposition because of their faith. They uh, are being slandered, maybe they're losing their jobs, maybe they, maybe they are facing social isolation because of their faith in Jesus. And Peter has been encouraging them to remain faithful in the face of that opposition. When you respond to evil, he said, with gentleness, it drains evil of its power and serves as a, as a witness, a powerful witness to the power of the gospel. That's what he's been saying. Okay, so are you, are you with me? That, like, that's what we've been talking about for a couple weeks. That's what he has just finished saying. So what Peter is now saying in this passage has to have something to do with what he has just said about the nature of uh, suffering under opposition. And so what Peter is doing is, as he's talking about the role of suffering under opposition in the Christian life, he looks for an example. And of all the options that he had available to him of historical figures throughout the Old Testament, he comes to Noah. And he says, Noah is a great example of what I've just been talking about. Okay, that just logically, if we, if we look at what's clear in this passage and we understand the context of what he has just said, um, I think that much is clear. And once we understand that, I think we can actually make some pretty good headway in understanding what this passage is all about. And um, I'm relying heavily on uh, a sermon by my friend David Richman, who uh, listening to his sermon really helped me understand what this passage is all about. So um, three things that I want you to see in this passage 
once we understand that he is using Noah as an example of suffering under opposition. And so we see Noah as an example, we see the sign of baptism, and we see a promise about the future. So first, what he's doing is he is saying, Peter is saying that Noah is an example. So how is Noah an example of remaining faithful under opposition? And why, of all of the stories in the Bible, does Peter choose Noah as his example? Well, if you go back to the story of Noah in the book of Genesis, Genesis 6 through 9, uh, you can read there the story of Noah who builds an ark and, as Peter says here, eight people are saved by getting in the ark as the waters of the flood cover the earth. And it says at the beginning of that story, it says that as God looks down on the earth, God is distraught and dismayed when he looks at all the people of the earth. And it says that there in Genesis 6, that like the, the evil of human, humankind, of humanity, has reached its high point. And it says that every intention of everyone's heart was only evil all the time. I mean, that, that's, that's really bad. That, that statement in Genesis 6 is sort of stunning in its comprehensiveness. Every intention of everyone's heart was only evil all the time. And it says because of this, God regretted that he had created human beings. And it says that it grieved him to his heart. I mean, can you imagine that? That I mean, we, I think, have a tendency to think, well, we, we are living in a very evil age. Some people think that. But Genesis 6 is saying that that, that was really the height of human, you know, evil, of, of, of human beings just saying, we are going to do our own thing and we do not care about who God is or what he says. And God, in his divine way, is sad that he created human beings because of the extent of their evil. And so God is grieved and he's saying, I'm just going to put an end to this. But then he sees one man, he sees Noah. And it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And there was one righteous man in the middle of this world filled with evil. And so God says, okay, for the sake of Noah, this one righteous man, I'm going to uh, restrain my judgment. And I'm going to save this one man, this one righteous man and his family. And so God tells Noah to build an ark to preserve this righteous man and his family. Uh, and this tiny remnant of humanity uh, continues and is saved from judgment and carry on God's purposes. And so Noah begins building the ark. And Peter says that as Noah builds the ark, that the patience of God, uh, that God's patience waited, that God was patient. Um, not waiting for Noah to finish the ark, but, but God's um, just desire to judge evil, uh, that he withheld his judgment, that he was patient during that time. Um, Peter says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So how is this the patience of God? Well, if you think about what, would have, what was happening then, uh, Noah hears God tell him to build an ark. And so Noah goes out and starts chopping down trees. And he starts peeling the bark off of the trees. And he starts, you know, sawing trees and, uh, and planing 
boards into lumber and begins building an ark and then I don't know does he like tar the ark and then he goes and he's collecting all of the animals and this is you know this didn't happen quickly I don't think the Bible says how long it took Noah to build the ark but it would have taken a long it would have taken years right and surely given that that Noah is the one righteous man surrounded by evil people everywhere around him his neighbors and his I don't know his co-workers would have mocked him would have would have would have just hurled insults at him Noah what are you doing like well I'm building an ark why are you building an ark because it's gonna rain what do you mean it's gonna rain it says that it had not rained before that Uh, there's a lot of debate about what that means but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> but can you imagine this this kind of crazy, crazy man, Noah, building an ark in the middle of the desert, and his, his, uh, all, all the other people around him are going, what in the world are you doing, Noah? And so as he's building, everybody's mocking him, insulting him, probably trying to stop him, sabotaging him. You know, he probably comes out in the morning and half of his pile of wood is gone. But Noah endures in the face of opposition. He he keeps building. He keeps doing what God has called him to do. But not only that, uh, if if you look in Second Peter, Peter actually says that um, Noah was a preacher of righteousness in his day. And so what Peter is saying is that as his neighbors are like mocking him and insulting him, Peter is responding by telling people about the goodness of God. Peter is telling people uh, that there is a God who is good and who is just. He is, he is pointing people to God and yet nobody believes him. Nobody believes him. And he remains faithful. He's defending God's honor, and people just think he's foolish. And what Peter is showing us is this. Noah is an example of what it looks like to live a life of faithfulness to God in the midst of a world where people do not share your values, do not share your faith, uh, where people don't care about what you believe. Noah is an example of what it looks like to live a faithful Christian life in a world that is full of darkness. And so let me ask you, have you ever felt like Noah? Have you ever been frustrated? Um, Have you ever wondered, God, what in the world are you doing? What is going on with my life? God, surely if you're good and surely, God, if you love me, then my life shouldn't be so hard. You know, Noah understood what it was like to be frustrated. Or have you ever felt like God has called you to do something that is too big for you to accomplish on your own? Noah knows exactly what that's like. Have you ever felt like you were the only, you're, you're in a place where you are the only Christian there? And people think that you're foolish because of your belief in this God that you cannot see. And um, everyone around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, Everybody has a totally different view of the world. Their values don't match you, yours. What do you do? Do you just run away? Do you go hide somewhere that's more amenable to your view of the world? No, like Noah, God calls you to remain faithful. Noah is an example of what it looks like to remain faithful to God when literally everybody else has turned their back on him. And that's why Peter uses Noah 
as an illustration here. Noah is a great example. But there's more than just Noah as an example. Because Noah shows us what it's like to live this way. He, he is an example, but he's not only an example. Peter's not simply saying, okay, go be like Noah. He's actually saying more than that. He says that when, Peter says that when you remain faithful under opposition, it is in those moments that Jesus is with you. When you are faithful in the face of opposition, those are the moments, especially when the presence of God is with you. Now, where do you say that? Well, you, you, you see that, and I know it's kind of confusing, but where Peter is saying, what Peter is saying is that Jesus, in the Spirit, preached to the spirits imprisoned in the days of Noah. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> there, are, there are two or three ma major views about what that means, and I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. What I think it means, okay? What I think it means is this. Um, what he, what, I think what Peter is saying is that while Noah was building the ark, and while his neighbors and you know people around him are mocking him, and Noah responds gently, Noah responds by pointing people to God, that it wasn't simply the words of Noah, but it was actually Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, speaking through Noah. Um, as Noah, tired, frustrated, confused, is building the ark, and people all around him are mocking him. And he is telling them of the goodness of God. Jesus is with him. And it wasn't just that way for Noah. It's that way for you as well. That when you experience opposition, when I experience opposition for our faith, Jesus is with us. If you, if you remember in the spring, we did a, a sermon series on the person of the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 14 and 16, Jesus is telling his followers, he's saying, I'm about to leave. And he says, it's better for you if I go. Because if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit, who will not only be with you, but he will be in you. And what Peter is saying here is that in a similar way, the, Holy, uh, the, the pre-incarnate Christ through Noah by the power of the Spirit, preaches good news to people who would not listen. And what that means is this, that when you're frustrated and you're wondering what in the world God is doing, Jesus is with you. And when you feel like circumstances will overwhelm you, Jesus is with you. And when everyone is against you and you feel like you want to run away and hide, Jesus is with you. This is what Peter is saying, you are just like Noah. Can you believe it? <laughs> Who's ever read the story of Noah and the ark and thought, oh, I'm just like Noah. But Peter is saying that when you remain faithful in the face of opposition, you are just like Noah. You are living in a time and a place where the world around you does not share your faith in God. And you've been called to an impossible task. You've been called to an impossible task to suffer when you are insulted in order to bear witness to the power of the gospel. And while you may feel like you are alone, the Spirit of God is with you and in you. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is in you. The same Spirit who was present with Noah 
and Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah is in you as well. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is with you, and you are not alone, and you will not be put to shame. Noah is an example. He's an illustration of what it looks like to live the faithful Christian life in the midst of a dark world. Okay, but how do you, how do we, um, how do we know that's true? How do we know that it's true that Jesus is with us? Well, the second thing that Peter says here is that he has given you a sign, your baptism. He's given you the sign of baptism to give you confidence before God. Peter is talking about the ark which brought Noah and his family safely through the water. And then he says this in verse 21. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, very confusing words on the surface. Why does baptism correspond to the ark, and why does he say that that saves you now? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But first, what I want you to think about is this. How do I know that God is with me? Uh, How do I know that it's worth it to remain faithful to Jesus? How do I know that I can trust that I won't get to the end of my life and feel like it was all a waste of time? How do I know? The way that we typically respond to that question is with our feelings. Um, You know, I feel good about Jesus today, so I guess I'll be faithful to Jesus today. Or I don't feel good about Jesus today, so maybe I won't be faithful to him. Sometimes it feels like the sacrifice is too much, and I'm just... I'm just not feeling it. We tend to rely on our feelings when it comes to our relationship with God. But what Peter is saying here is don't rely on your feelings. Instead, look to your baptism. What he's saying is that the ark passing through the floodwaters, which saved these eight people, that that the ark passing through the waters corresponds to baptism. And he's saying just as eight people were saved from judgments, By getting into the ark, in the same way, you are saved from judgment by your baptism. I mean, that's, can we agree that on the surface, that's what he's saying. So then the question, of course, comes up, what does he, why does he say that we're saved by baptism? I mean, we're a Protestant church. Like, Protestants get really uncomfortable when you say things like baptism really means something important get very uncomfortable if we say what Peter says here, that baptism now saves you. What does that mean? Well, notice that Peter immediately qualifies his statement. He says that uh, baptism now saves you, not just as a removal of dirt from the body. And what he's saying is that the power of baptism isn't just about water washing dirtiness off of your skin. Uh, The power of baptism isn't in the water itself. The power of baptism is the power of God. It's Jesus' power. It's the power of the resurrection, bringing you from death to life. And what he's saying here is this, that there is a sign, there's a sign, which is baptism, which points to a deeper reality, which is that God has brought you from death to life, 
because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But what Peter is saying is these two things, the sign and the deeper reality, are so closely aligned to one another that you can trust the sign for what it points to, for the deeper reality that it points to. Or another way to say that is this, when you doubt the deeper reality, you can still have confidence because you have received the sign. Look, you have to follow Peter's logic here. He says baptism, okay, so he says what baptism doesn't do, and then he says what it does do, right? Um, He says baptism does not save by washing dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God. And that word appeal um, is the word pledge. He's saying your, your baptism is a pledge of God's faithfulness. The fact that you, if you are a Christian and that you have been baptized, that you have received this sign of baptism, it is like a token that can be exchanged for the real thing. And so when you don't feel, you don't have the feelings to well up within you, goodness, you know, in, in relation to God, you can still trust in the sign, in the pledge, in the token. So what he's saying is this, the moment that you doubt, the moment that you begin to wonder if following Jesus is really worth it, the moment that your warm, fuzzy feelings about God uh, evaporates, the moment that you begin to think God must have really screwed up because my life is not at all going the way that I would have thought it should have. My life is a mess. You have a pledge. You have a token. You have, you have a, um, a sign that has been placed upon you, your baptism. God has washed you. He has put his name upon you and welcomed you into his family. All the benefits of Christ belong to you. He will never turn his back on you. You will never get to the end of your life and look back and say, all that I have sacrificed wasn't worth it. You will never say that. You will never say the sacrifice was too great. God will not let go of you. And you can trust that that is true because you've been baptized into his name. And this is true. And you know what? It's great, isn't it? when you feel like that is true. But it's true whether you feel it or not. And so what Peter is saying is in those moments of doubt, when it feels like Satan himself is hounding you, you can turn around and say, leave me alone, because I've been baptized. I have a sign, I have a token uh, a, a, a pledge of God's faithfulness to me. God has committed himself to you. And here's the point Peter's making. Since God has committed himself to you, you can therefore commit yourself to him in response. And you can live the sort of life that he's called you to live, like Noah did, a life where you remain faithful to God, even in the midst of opposition. Because Jesus suffered on the cross for you, you can be faithful to him when you suffer in his name. And you can have hope and confidence about the future 
because Jesus is on his throne. And that's the third thing that I want you to see, is that Peter finishes uh, this section with a promise about the future. Notice how the passage flows, right? It starts by talking about Jesus who suffered, the one righteous man suffering for the many unrighteous people, but it ends with Jesus on his throne. Verse 22, it says about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's saying that Jesus is in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is sitting on his throne. And angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Another way to summarize, you know, angels, authorities, and powers is everything. (laughs) Jesus is on his throne and he rules over everything. That's the promise. Your future is secure because Jesus is on the throne. And he rules over everything. And so, let me just finish with this. If you're tired, there's good news. Jesus is on his throne. If you're worried about the future, and let's be honest, if you're not somewhat worried about the future, you're probably not paying attention. But if you're worried about the future, there's good news. Jesus is on his throne. And if you're anxious, Jesus is on his throne. If you're anxious about a pandemic, if you're anxious about the economy, if you are anxious, the amazing thing about 2020 is that we all knew that there was going to be an election and we haven't even gotten there yet. And if you're anxious about the election, there's good news. Jesus is on his throne. And when you have been misunderstood and maligned, Jesus is on his throne. When you are brokenhearted, when your dreams seem to evaporate, Jesus is on his throne. When you are confused, when you are hurt, when you are just worn out, Jesus is on his throne. When life is hard, Jesus is on his throne. Friends, we are living through a strange time where uncertainty is the only thing that we can really count on. We are living in a time where it is easier to express outrage than it is to express grace. And there is pressure on you to compromise. And like, um, well, let me just leave it at that. There's pressure on you to compromise. There is pressure to say, maybe Jesus isn't the solution to our world's problems. But friends, what Peter is telling us is this, you are not like everyone else. You are holy. You are strangers. You are exiles in this world. You are called to live with a living hope, and although you may suffer for a time, You will never get to the end of your life and conclude it wasn't worth it. Because Jesus is on the throne. You can live today with humble confidence. And that's the good news. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are on your throne. That is such good news. And I don't know how we would get through Uh, the days and weeks right now 
if we did not have that promise. Jesus, we pray that you would use these words to rearrange our hearts and our priorities. Jesus, many of us, much of the time, we think of your role in our lives as somebody who comes to make things better. Somebody who comes to help us go the last 10%. Somebody who owes us comfort and happiness and success. God, I thank you so much for uh, the words of 1 Peter that are reorienting us to life in a world where things don't always go the way that we would want. Jesus, would we know you to be not the cherry on top, but the foundation of our lives, the alpha and the omega. You have given us so much. You've given us yourself on the cross. You have put your name upon us in our baptisms. So please help us to live with hope because you are on the throne. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.